say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. So super excited to have Moji carry me here with us today, who is a self-described carbon negative entrepreneur, old school millennial, and co-founder uh, and CEO of Semvita. Semvita is creating a sustainable future by the power of nature-inspired solutions for energy transition. So start off, Moji, telling us about yourself and about what this means, the, the power of nature-inspired solutions for an energy transition. Sure, and thanks for having me again. Really appreciate this. This is really exciting, you know, talking about all things Houston energy transition and, and what Semvita is doing. Um, just to kind of give a bit of context, uh, I moved to U.S. in 2008. I was in uh, Louisiana going to school for about two years, which uh, explains the accent. <laughs> <laughs> and then I moved to Houston for my first job in 2010 in oil and gas, and I've been here since then, so about 12 years. Um, during that journey, I started off uh, initially in a big kind of oil and gas service company, and then I got more interested in the startups and entrepreneurship moved to a startup uh, where we commercialize DNA sequencing in oil and gas, kind of building this, um, you know, 23andMe maps, if you could imagine, for the subsurface. Uh, and that was used to help companies decide where to drill the next well. That got me more interested in biotech as the bigger picture because, you know, our main investor was in San Diego, this company called Illumina, that is the reason DNA sequencing became accessible for all applications. And that led to Samvita. So that nature-inspired uh, application is the use of genetic engineering, or what the what the, some call synthetic biology, um, in you know taking everything that we've learned from pharmaceutics and biotech, in you know working with microbes and using microbes for different functions, and bringing that to energy transition applications across oil and gas, both upstream and downstream mining, and help these companies reduce their carbon and environmental footprints on one hand, on the other hand, really reinvent how they do things so that they could create new uh, sources of revenue. And all, all uh, in Houston. <laughs> all in Houston. I love it. So I'm curious because you call yourself a old school millennial. I picture myself as part of the Oregon Trail generation. <laughs> um, do you feel like uh, that impacts your founding this company and working on energy transition and everything that's gone on during our lifetimes around climate change? Uh, very much so. I think, you know, for all of those who work in oil and gas, we have this kind of generation gap also where a lot of, you know, like boomers basically are, are running the show. And, and But as those get close to retirement, there is a gap and there's reasons for it, partly because of the the previous downturn in 1980s and people didn't go to oil and gas. So we have this gap and then you have the millennials and a lot of people discounted millennials like, oh, entitled, they're not ready to take on these positions and how we're going to bridge this gap. It was a big topic 
uh, before it was completely like dominated by the energy transition and climate change topic in the past few years. So having worked in that environment, I've hung out a lot with people older than me in, mm -hmm. in oil and gas and kind of learning about their ways and, and how they think and how to decide and working alongside them. Also, they were my customers because being in a service company, you have to, you know, uh, work with the bigger companies and sell basically the services. So learning kind of that mindset. So even though by birth and, and everything, I'll fit within the millennial category, but a lot of the way that, mm. you know, I, I do things I've learned through them. So it's, that's where that old school millennial kind of comes together, which is for me, that's how I bridge the gap uh, between, you know, millennials and the next generation. So tell us a little bit more about that mind. What do you mean by that mindset for those of us who aren't necessarily from Houston? Um, you mean for the, the millennials or the... Well, just old school energy. Yeah, mm. like very resistant to change, mm. um, not wanting to really risk, um, mm. which is interesting because historically oil and gas is like as risk-taking as it could get. Like mm. think about wall catting and still today, they would drill wells that is dry and mm. it's, you know, five to $10 million. And it's like, huh, didn't work. Let's Let's go drill another one. But then again, in other cases, you could say, oh, well, we want to try this new, you know, software solution or something, and it's going to cost, you know, $50,000 for a trial. And it's like, whoa, 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 this is crazy. We have to really make sure we understand everything before we try. Um, so this is kind of a interesting uh, paradox, I would say, in the way oil and gas perceives risk. Um, because of energy transition in the last few years, that is all had changed now. Mm. Uh, the companies are more open-minded than I've ever seen in terms of trying new technology, supporting internal ideas, initiatives, and kind of bridging the gap um, in working with startups as well. So, you know, some of that, those learnings is, is not, you know, the case anymore today. So tell us more about your business. Tell us about uh, what's happening right now and like, why is now the time? Why should people be excited about Samvita? Sure. So, you know, the vision that we have is is think about reimagining heavy industries. So mm -hmm. when, you know, Bill Gates is talking about the next, you know, uh, unicorns or, you know, same with uh, Larry Fink, the next unicorns, the next trillion dollar companies similar to Tesla and, and such are going to come from energy transition applications between now and 2050. We want to be one of them. So thinking about what would those companies look like in 2050 and if we want to be one of them, what should we be doing today to build a foundation for that. So the area of technology that we have picked as the area with huge potential is um, synthetic biology. And we are developing these solutions across three different themes, which we believe is really what the future is going to be. The first one is for sustainable extraction of natural resources, mm. whether if it's minerals and, and metals that go into, you know, uh, batteries and, and like lithium and copper or hydrocarbons. Uh, the second theme is for sustainable production of chemicals and fuels and bringing the energy intake of these reactions down. So through biomanufacturing, you know, using microbes that do fermentation, but getting them to make these chemicals. And I could give you examples of things we're doing. And then the final one, which I think is, is really brings everything together, is um, sustainable renewal mm -hmm. of any waste that's created within extraction and production back into other sources of value. So, for example, CO2 we see as a waste that could be used also as a feedstock and turn into other things. Same with other sources of waste 
um, you know, any any kind of waste is because the process wasn't designed correctly, right? So how do we try to go back and and you know close the loop, the carbon loop on those? So these three themes then feed uh, basically our platform because we're a platform company, and we have three specific business units um, which I'll share really quickly. First one is around biomanufacturing, so low carbon biomanufacturing, CO two based chemicals. We have pathways from CO two to ethylene for decarbonization of polymers and plastics. We're doing that with Oxy. We have a pathway from CO2 to uh, sustainable aviation fuels. We're doing with United Airlines, decarbonization of aviation uh, you know, travel. And then we have a pathway from CO2 to what is called a renewable natural gas, uh, kind of a, a comparable to natural gas that's low carbon. And so excited about that for decarbonization of kind of utilities and energy services. All that is that first bucket of biomanufacturing. Second one is for biomining. And this is the concept of using microbes in spectrum of mining processes for better extraction of metals. Um, we have a, a big focus on copper uh, mm -hmm. because you need copper for electrification of things, uh, for bioleaching of copper. Um, today, and it was a surprise to me, about 20% of world's copper is already bioleached. So mm -hmm. mining industry is already using extensively this mm -hmm. method but not surprisingly, they're using microbes that are really not efficient. Mm. So we want to change that. And then we have a big focus on lithium, um, you know, for bioextraction of lithium, especially from lithium clay. So mm. that's that biomining. And then the third one is uh, what we call subsurface biomanufacturing. And our flagship project is gold hydrogen. It's a new way of making hydrogen, a new color to add to the spectrum. <laughs> and basically is hydrogen that's produced biologically in the subsurface. So we go to old mm. oil and gas um, assets, depleted reservoirs that still have that 10, 20% of oil that is not mm. recoverable. And we use microbes in the subsurface to ferment the oil and produce hydrogen. So it's a new way to produce zero carbon hydrogen at a cost that is less than a dollar per kg. So that is spectrum of applications. You could see kind of how the connectivity is across energy transition. A lot of the tools required is going to be petroleum engineers, mining, um, you know, backgrounds in oil and gas and biotech, all those things that Houston, because of the, the medical center and the industries that are already here, we have the expertise. And almost now on a weekly basis, we have team members joining us from California, from Boston, from New York, uh, basically to, to realize this vision. I love it. I have so many things I want to <laughs> ask and talk about here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, you mentioned that you're working with Oxy and with United. So Oxy is a great kind of traditional oil and gas, also carbon leader. Um, I am biased towards United Airlines because my dad was a pilot and my mom was okay. a flight attendant. <laughs> and I actually grew up in Hawaii. And so to go anywhere, you had to go in a very long pretty carbon intensive plane ride. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I mean, travel is in my DNA. I love it. But one of the things that uh, people are really thinking about right now, especially with gas prices, with everything that's going on with the pandemic is just like the impact of air travel. So can you talk more about, um, about that and just kind of how that fits into this entire uh, energy transition strategy? Yeah. I mean, so air travel is one of the, what they call the hard to abate kind of sectors because of the fact that just the time horizon for having, you know, electric planes or hydrogen powered planes and kind of rebuilding the safety metrics to mm. what we could be trusted to, to do that, it's kind of too long. So then you're left with, well, how could we bring the, 
carbon footprint of the fuels down from what they are today. And so instead of using fossil fuel as the feeder stock, you know, this category of um, SAF or sustainable aviation fuel is focused on using uh, maybe biomass uh, as a source of um, a starting point for the feeder stock. And in our case, to go even a step beyond that is to start with CO2 and using the carbon in, in the CO2. Mm -hmm. And there's this is not just one project in, you know, I can't share all the mm -hmm. specifics, but there's different pathways, different microbes involved, going to different kind of, uh, you know, kind of a intermediate molecules that then they're mixed to make that final um, combination of what could be kind of a drop in replacement for, um, you know, jet uh, fuel. So the reason that airline companies are excited about that is on one hand, everyone is now more cautious about the footprint of travel. I was reading something, I think in order to fly from say New York to China, the footprint is equal to like someone has to go vegetarian for like six years <laughs> so <laughs> not eat meat um you know and it's one of those things that we've really taken for granted mm -hmm. and it's become so cheap that it's so common that everyone just flies everywhere but it comes with the cost mm -hmm. and so decarbonizing air travel i think is becoming more and more important so that's why airlines are thinking about what are the technologies available today and what are the ones that basically shape up the future. So when United showed interest uh, in Sambita, you know, also thanks to Oxy and the prior relationship that they've had with Oxy being kind of the execution partner for working with us to build the plants. Part of the reason was if there is a pathway that is going to be the lowest carbon way possible to make sustainable aviation fuels, we want to have that, mm -hmm. even if it's going to take us a few years to get there. So United Airline Ventures is a newer thing that United is doing, investing in these technologies, making these bets across the board to enable that sustainable future that they have. And we're, we're you know very happy and lucky to work with them in that because at the end of the day, it's so hard for a startup to try to have this big impact just by ourselves and try to build the whole supply chain but through working with our partners like United, mm -hmm. we could play a big role in it still. I love everything about this story because in addition to, you know, my United friends and family out there, how committed they are to making mm -hmm. a difference, it really makes it personal. So uh, when you talk about energy, when you talk about climate change, when you talk about electrons, like people in Houston have a pretty high energy knowledge, but not everywhere. But when you're flying somewhere and when you are in the airports and you see that commitment that they have towards climate change, um, just talking about it is really helping to bring that top of mind. Also, you're a great example of like a homegrown Houston solution mm -hmm. and how, like you said, partnering with companies uh, helps bring those ideas from Houston to help solve climate change in cities all around the world. And I used to work for the city of Houston on climate change. And one of the things that was always kind of ironic is that cities work together on climate. And especially as governments kind of stepped back and weren't doing so much on climate, cities stepped up. But that meant that we would do a lot of international travel. And mm -hmm. so like we right. would be going all over the world, but flying in airplanes. And so this is a this is a really important solution. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, and, and, and you have to bring people together, right? Like there's going to be COP27 coming up in Egypt. You have to fly, right? Mm -hmm. There's no other way to get there. And we're going to fly to talk yeah. about climate. Right? And families and trade yeah. and technology, right? That we are we are such a connected world right now. It's so important. And I don't think that 
uh, everyone necessarily wants to become vegan for six years to uh, offset <laughs> one flight. And, yeah. and I don't think that everyone wants to stop traveling. And so right. that's so important about how we find the solutions. Yeah. But another thing uh, uh, we wanted to touch on, Laura, was uh, your work on hydrogen in the city and, and how that intersects with gold hydrogen. So mm -hmm. do you want to talk a little bit? Uh, yeah. So I, on my list of things that I loved from what you said was the gold hydrogen, because one, uh, hydrogen is like the hottest topic in Houston right now. We want to make the H in H-Town stand for hydrogen. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the federal government, the Department of Energy, has this big competition out about hydrogen hubs. Mm -hmm. And then within that, we come to everybody's favorite discussion about the rainbow of hydrogen colors. Mm -hmm. So I guess, how do, you, how do you feel about hydrogen in terms of it's obviously one of your pillars, but it's one of your pillars. It's not your only pillar. Where does it fit within kind of energy transition strategy? And then do you have a take on colors? Should we talk about colors? Is it Should we have more colors? D define for us gold first. Yes. Let's start yeah. there. Sure. Um, so gold hydrogen, you know, we, we, we picked the color for a few reasons. Um, but Bling. It's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. It's, it's at the bottom of the rainbow. That's where you're going to find the, the pot ah. of gold. But um, gold hydrogen is basically hydrogen that's produced biologically, meaning by microbes and in, in situ in the subsurface. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, a, a variation of, you know, there's now places where you could naturally find hydrogen in the subsurface. You know, this is a thing and mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot more of it because people are starting to pay attention. If you imagine the same way that, you know, oil and gas industry has evolved and there's places that you have natural gas, there are also places that you could find hydrogen. It's just no one has looked for that before and knowing what criteria to, to look for and how to develop those projects. But then that raises the questions like, well, why do we have hydrogen there? You know, how are they made? You know, what are the mechanisms? And mm. a lot of it is biological roots. So mm. then we could understand, well, what are those microbes and what reactions are they doing? And what are the knobs that mm. we could start to optimize to produce even more? Um, so, uh, you know, we have a lot going on for gold hydrogen. I would love to share as kind of the info becoming public, especially field trial that is on the way. Um, but going back to the, the overall hydrogen, I think, you know, um, there's a speculation that this could grow into it. You know, there's a report from um, one of the big, big firms in, in Wall Street. This could be a, a trillion dollar industry at Goldman Sachs. And, um, you know, the, the area that where people are trying to kind of add more details, like, well, what are the applications? You know, hydrogen as fuel, hydrogen as feed stock for things. And so others are working on different parts of that supply chain. Of course, everyone loves it because you don't create emissions once you use it, right? But the one area that uh, is the reason we're very interested in hydrogen is because in order to make things from CO2, there's no hydrogen in CO2. Mm -hmm. So you need to have hydrogen from somewhere. There's pathways where you could get that hydrogen from water, which we are doing, but there's other pathways that are more efficient if you could just have access to hydrogen. The problem has been if you want to use CO2 as a feedstock and you use gray hydrogen, that would just destroy all this carbon savings that you had because of using yeah. CO2. Define gray hydrogen for those of us who don't know. So that's just, you know, a steam methane reforming, okay. like the status quo, like 95 okay. plus percent of how hydrogen is made today, you know. Um, so, and then if you want to use green hydrogen next to CO2 to make things, 
that's great in terms of the carbon footprint, but cost becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, access to uh, renewable electricity and, you know, there's not uh, as much pipeline of uh, green hydrogen. So, um, and then finally, personally, this is my favorite project out of everything that Samvita is doing. And the reason for that is my background in the energy industry. And when I talk about, you know, reinventing and re- mm-hmm. reimagining industries, that's not just like a buzzword. This is an example. It's like you still are going to need drilling engineers, petroleum engineers, geologists, petrophysicists uh, who know how to operate in the soft surface, but they're not looking in this case for fossil fuels anymore. It's for hydrogen, you know, but the, a lot of the processes are the same. Same way with geothermal, right? You know, it's a lot of oil and gas, but it's applied in a new direction. So uh, doing those and kind of, you know, to take a step back, in the course of humanity, I guess the last hundred years, we've always thought of fossil fuels and the people call it fossil fuels because we used it primarily for fuel. So a lot of that is going to go away by electrification. Then it's like, well, then are these still fossil fuels? And to me, we should start calling it, these are, you know, hydrocarbons mm-hmm. that are subsurface, natural, natural subsurface feedstocks for things. So using what is in the subsurface as a feedstock to make other chemicals, you know, not just fuels, mm-hmm. because you need feedstocks for uh, chemicals. Um, but you know, hydrogen being being the one that is also speaks to the future. Um, you know, with the hydrogen economy being built up, and for the oil and gas industry to play more of an active role um, in this, not just doing the carbon capture and storage for gray hydrogen to create the blue hydrogen, or just be limited to the sequestration. Um, part of the you know hydrogen um, possibilities for them. So so if I, I heard this correctly, um, what makes this interesting for gold hydrogen is you you are going to depleted reservoirs, right? And uh, I think if if I remember correctly, there's something like a million oil and gas wells mm-hmm. in the U.S. today, and and something like eight hundred thousand of them are in this kind of stripper well, nearly depleted mm-hmm. phase uh, of life, orphan abandoned, or, or they're orphaned or abandoned life, all of it. What's what's exciting about this is you could take the the gold hydrogen processes, go to a, a select few or, or or potentially all of these stripper wells, and say, look, we're going to introduce a new process to uh, extract uh, a different type of feedstock, hydrogen, essentially, or manufacture um, other types of chemicals at that site and and, yeah. and and keep it in the ground until you you need to literally open the tap and pull the hydrogen out. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a, a way to interpret exactly? Yeah, and and. The other angle is the reason people know that statistic mm-hmm. is because they are measuring how much methane mm-hmm. these orphan wells are emitting. Yeah. And so that's a problem, right? So there's work in progress to systematically plug and abandon these wells. But the way I think about it is these are subsurface facilities mm-hmm. that someone has already spent the capex, created the pathway to the subsurface, to the facility, the pore space, where there's the, the natural feedstock waiting and because we don't know what to do with it, we don't have the technology to get the rest of it out economically. They've decided, yeah, oh, we're done with this. We'll go drill other wells. And that, you know, is still there. So going in there has that added benefit of basically close the loop for mm-hmm. those facilities. And so we're starting with end-of-life assets. But the big vision is then to go to those and re- rejuvenate these uh, mm-hmm. subsurface facilities um, for production of hydrogen. Yeah, and, and the other thing I, I didn't hear you say is the, the infrastructure to pull hydrocarbons away is already there as well. Uh, that's that's uh, actually, you know, uh, when I was talking about the natural hydrogen, mm-hmm. 
the one of the problems that they're already seeing is you could find places where there's already natural hydrogen, but usually they're like in the middle of nowhere where there's like <laughs> no infrastructure. Uh -huh. So what do you do? You know, like you have to create the whole thing and, and then that would start to use like, well, is it still economical? But for us, we start from where there is already, mm. uh, you know, massive infrastructure in place that is already paid for, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and this is just like retooling it um, in a different way. You know, more broadly also, just to, to close the loop on this, the way I think about it is like in the oil and gas and people from Houston, like you said, will have more of an appreciation for this. You have upstream and you have downstream, right? Mm -hmm. Upstream up to today, their job has been, we get the oil out, we pass it on, we're out the picture, the downstream guys will take it from there. So the product from subsurface to surface doesn't change. Mm -hmm. It's just oil and gas, whatever API, whatever you know the reservoir gives us. Now, what if you could change the product? Mm -hmm. You know, like you have down, you have, have this downstream infrastructure on surface that is also creating emissions, right? To make you know ethylene, to make hydrogen, to make all these things out of fossil fuels. What if you, you could do those things in situ, one by one, mm -hmm. and basically build these subsurface biorefineries and subsurface chemical plants, right? Then think about how much of the footprint is eliminated. You don't see these facilities on surface. You just see, oh, there's this is all happening in the subsurface and you're producing hydrogen to a start, but mm -hmm. it could be other things as well. And so what industry is set up perfectly to create you know, this vision? Mm -hmm. It's the oil and gas industry. So when we see when I think about Houston transforming, is not just that. We have this amazing infrastructure also for wind and solar, and there's more and more focus on it, but it's also how to recreate the existing industries, but in a new way mm -hmm. that attracts the millennials to the industry mm -hmm. and others from outside, um, mm -hmm. because this is where the infrastructure is. This is where the customers are going to be, companies moving in and building up this new uh, infrastructure. A question, looking at it from a community perspective, right? So you're talking about abandoned wells, and this is one of the criticisms of oil and gas just traditionally is kind of the environmental impact and environmental justice is a huge concern uh, globally, but it's something that's getting a lot more uh, attention. And it's also a challenge that's really hard to fix. It's hard to go back in time and fix something. But you're, you're talking about kind of going back to places that otherwise would be abandoned that have all types of leaks. And in a lot of cases, we don't even know what's there. Would, would your technology help address some of those concerns and what would you want to tell a community who who is thinking of it like a light switch either we should not do this at all or yes and you're kind of presenting a third option yeah i mean you bring up a great point because a lot of these communities it's kind of a conflict in like mm -hmm. on one hand um to to a degree they have enjoyed the 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 benefits of being close to these assets or owning part of it and the royalties and things like that and uh, the kind of the thriving economy, hotels, restaurants, and everything else that the industry has brought. But they've also uh, suffered the consequences as, you know, if it's like environmental, even just like the trucks going in mm -hmm. and out, like all those things that we, we all know, the communities have already brought up. So they they have this kind of a bad taste in their mouth for, so they're suspicious of any new kind of activity, like well, what does this mean? But I think if we, on one hand, uh, apply the lesson learned from the first time that this has been tried there and, you know, start with where this is already a problem, like these assets that are left 
And also you guys already know, like when we talk about this abandonment, this is not Chevron and Exxon that own mm. this. They've already right. passed it down like three times mm -hmm. to mom and pop that cannot afford to do this properly, right? Um, so um, if we were to go back in those communities, I would want to start with like, you know, really setting things up correctly and sustainably and, you know, involve the community as part of the process. In, you know, in our team, we have people who have a long history in um, building sustainable relationships with the communities in industries, both oil and gas and mining. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a, it's an optimization problem, you know, um, until this, this grows into an industry and that they could be a part of and enjoy the benefits more than kind of you know, hating the consequences just because of the footprint and the attention that this brings um, to the area. I think that's so important. And I think that like you talked about how you said hydrogen was the thing that you're most excited about. You can gold feel hydrogen. Gold, gold hydrogen. hydrogen. Gold okay. <laughs> well, you can feel in Houston and it, Houston is almost synonymous with oil and gas, right? It's mm -hmm. part of our history. It's part of our culture and that the energy transition is here to stay and everyone is is invested in trying to figure out their role. But you can see a real excitement around the idea of hydrogen because it does align with all of the strategic history of what the industry has done and what they know how to do. But there's that sense of pride and that, hey, here's how we can do it bigger and better and safer and cleaner. And so it's you can't go back in time and you can't mm -hmm. um, undo what was done. But you we do have a really exciting moment in time where we're looking at how can we fix and learn from what we've done and fix and do it better and help reduce emissions. And that really is important here because it's not just renewables, right? Mm -hmm. Renewables play a huge role. But when we think about our 2050 goals, we have to look at those hard to abate sectors. And that is hard, hence the name. And so yeah. like hydrogen does play, hopefully plays yeah. a role in how we tackle that. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, um, when, when you go out and so when I travel and part of the reason I like to travel, mm -hmm. say to California, mm -hmm. New York, and I just was in D.C. the past two days is to kind of be outside of this bubble that we're in and just kind of how people feel about climate change, mm -hmm. energy transition, how to describe the, the different ways. And I think one issue that we've had is, you know, oil and gas industry they, they've done or we've done such a terrible job like explaining <laughs> what is the industry actually does to mm. the point that some compare the industries like as if this is like tobacco it's like well can you just stop like smoking that would be great but it's like with oil and gas it doesn't work like that it's supplying basically energy to every other industry um now fast track to today you know um, people are realizing oh wait you know as much as we hope that we could have this transition go really quickly and somehow solar and wind, you know, among other things, are going to really start to be a bigger chunk of mm -hmm. the energy. But reality is, it's just, that's not going to happen. It's going to take a longer time. So within this time, which let's say from now to 2050, how do we lower the footprint of oil and gas? That's like the key thing. So taking that a step, for all these guys that are outside of here to really engage with oil and gas, that's where it starts. If someone doesn't want to engage, like, oh, you guys are evil, we don't want to, like, you mm -hmm. need to go away, that doesn't help with anything because, you know, we have to work together. And once they sit down and talk with 
oil and gas companies, they realize actually they're very intelligent, very open-minded people who have the same goal. It's just, you know, you know, breaking down the silos. And one thing that I like to mention is, you know, uh, what, so when I was thinking about sustainability as someone who's come from oil and gas, um, I kind of got more interested in the story of fracking, mm -hmm. right? And one thing that people br bring up is George Mitchell is like the, that's how people mm -hmm. know him as uh, the founder of fracking. But I started to learn more about him and was like, wait, like this is such a small part of his legacy. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And when you start reading about the foundation of woodlands and the vision that he had for sustainability, humans living in harmony with nature and designing the whole city to bring that home and a lot of these other engagements I mean, his best friend was, was um, Stephen Hawkins, like mm. talking about like how could science help forward humanity and then, you know, establish uh, organizations for sustainability. This is someone that is known as like the pinnacle of like why oil and gas is bad. And it's like such a wrong narrative, like once you get to actually learn about the facts. And so how do we, how do we educate everyone about, you know, the role that oil and gas plays? And uh, this transformation that Houston is going through, it starts with conversations, I think, you know, and kind of bringing more people to, to bridge the gap, which is happening, I think, you know, in, across the past year. But I hope to see a lot more of that. Yeah, and I think one of the, the challenges that, that happens, and you said this before, Laura, energy comes on like a light switch. And people are just used to it being available and it, it's very hard to see how that electron or that, that gallon of gasoline gets into your car for most folks. And it, it's a journey of miles <laughs> and mm -hmm. effort and sweat and tears and, and hard labor to get, you know, from the refinery, from the pipeline, from the, from the wellhead. You know, it, it's, it's a huge journey. And it, we do it so effectively that the oil is so cheap when, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we're producing um, at, at, at capacity. And that's why we take it for granted because it, it we produce so much of it, yep. right? And we are very good at pulling it out of the ground. And uh, that cheapness has allowed us to tackle the industrial revolution really in a, in a cost-effective way that that is responsible for our kind of contemporary lifestyle. However, we're talking about a transition here, right? And and I think one of the things I heard you say um, is that the transition just isn't wind, it just isn't solar. It is the transition of the, the physical hydrocarbon industry itself is going to change, and 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 that's what's going to make it exciting, uh, because it is going to have a lower footprint. And and you're right, like we're we're not going to do away with hydrocarbons. They are still a fundamental part of our industry and supply chain, but we can make it more efficient, and and that'll do a lot for uh, hitting net zero and and hitting kind of the the climate equity that we talk about. Oh, uh, I will I will throw out there that. Um, cheap doesn't always equal good, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. So yep. have we produced fossil fuels and oil and gas very cheaply? Yes. Does that mean that we did it in the best possible way? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think there are plenty of, of examples and there are plenty of folks and that's part of why there's been this disconnect and there's mm -hmm. been uh, a lot of criticism, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of environmental issues. And so what is really neat here is that even if you say, absolutely, we should, 2050, we, we should have no more oil and gas, right? Up until then, we should do everything we can to make what we have right now as clean as possible. 
and as safe as possible. And that helps the communities, right? And and my other thing that I say all the time is that success in climate tech and in the energy transition isn't just about getting investment, right? It's about getting technology deployed to the communities that need it most. And so that's exactly what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the energy industry, what the fossil fuel industry is really focusing in on as a part of the energy transition. And that is unique and that is new, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that is something that to the folks who just see it as a light switch, that it is on and off, um, hasn't seen that before. And that now, thanks to climate change, thanks to grid instability, thanks to it being really, really hot or really, really cold or wildfires or all of the things that we are facing, um, it's people know that sometimes you try to turn the light switch on and it doesn't come on and right. people want to know more and they want to know. <laughs> and that's where that idea of cheap doesn't necessarily mean good is that they, yeah. they want good. And then we try to figure out how do you make good affordable yeah. and available and accessible to everyone everywhere. It's just fundamentally like that. What I guess some people describe that as like the social cost of the, the, the carbon or the things we use in a daily life. And at the end of the day, I mean, whether something is going to cost a dollar or two, fundamentally, that's an agreement between humans mm. that, oh, this is valued, this gold is better than silver. You know, um, it's not inherent to, to what it is all the time. So when are we going to build in that cost, mm -hmm. the environmental cost and create a system that could be deployed globally because like you said, their communities, they haven't even enjoyed the benefits of fossil fuels mm. so right. far. They're still mm. burning wood and stuff. And so who are we to tell them, oh, you, you can't use that. Like you have to right off the bat be on solar and wait much longer to enjoy the same things that developed countries have enjoyed for years. And, and if we were to do it, like you said, the best approach is like, how do we kick it off sustainably, um, you know, and create this kind of, uh, I guess, just system across the board, which is like really, that's that's a really hard challenge because the basis of human striving for better is that competition, you know? So you can't tell people you can't do that. Like you can't tell us, oh, you guys cannot be ambitious. Mm -hmm. You have to stop. <laughs> it doesn't work, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Yeah. So let, let's let's change gears a little bit and and talk a little bit about like the Houston ecosystem, the innovation ecosystem we have here. I met you, gosh, must have been six or seven years ago, I think now, um, when it felt like the innovation ecosystem was small, but that's not true. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the the ecosystem you you see here today. What are you most proud of about the Houston ecosystem? Honestly, I think that it starts with access to talent. Hmm. Um, when, you know, for that market applications, like in, you don't have to go far to find some of the world's best process engineers, mm. um, in Houston, you know, and geology, like a lot of the, the, the use cases. And then also similarly, more relevant, maybe to our company for, um, biotech talent mm -hmm. because of the medical center, hmm. biggest medical center in the world. Uh, so a lot of our team members actually join us from. Methodist and Emily Anderson, they were working on cancer research and, and different aspects, but they are looking for something that's more, I guess, tangible in the short term. Um, so having access to that is huge. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is capital efficiency by which you could build a company uh, is a really big help. So there's networks to kind of find uh, mm -hmm. what these are. 
Uh, there are a lot of resources, like you said, now more than before for um, getting people started, like entrepreneurship, you know. Um, I remember when I started, it was basically the initiation of what used to be Station Houston mm -hmm. in the Midtown, like before they even moved to downtown and then they got to downtown and grew from there. Uh, and then a few of the other hubs started, you know, Cannon being, being one, and then eventually Greentown mm -hmm. moved to Houston with a, much of a really nice focus on just specifically on, on clean tech and a lot of the CVCs that mm. along the way also popped up and they have played a huge role. Like our investors, we have Occidental Common Ventures, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, they're all, you know, in, in Houston. Um, and then, you know, VCs kind of building up as well. So I think that plays a big role. You know, I like to say though, at the end of the day, you know, with entrepreneurs and it's kind of been my, like, these things are there, but you can't like rely on them that they're going to somehow like make mm -hmm. you successful. <laughs> you still have to pay your dues and, and go through kind of the suffering, <laughs> especially <laughs> the in suffering. the early days. Yeah, like yeah. it's it's like your tolerance to pain is is basically determines how successful you're gonna be. Yeah. Um, but as you grow, you know, um, you could tap into different sources of um, you know, help. For example, when we launched Gold Hydrogen, one of the biggest fans, supporters of it was the, you know, Brett at the Center for mm -hmm. Houston's yes. Future. Mm -hmm. And he involved really quickly, he said, we, we, we want to be involved. How could we help? Uh, let me connect you to this guy, to that guy. You know, um, a lot of the existing infrastructure here, a lot of the clients we've had, like the way we connected with Oxy was at an event that a Tudor Pickering Holt mm -hmm. put together, like a local Houston investment, uh, you know, bank firm who uh, put these events together around disruption in the energy industry, bringing people together. And there's no lack of those kind of events. So it's always like, you know, it, the, the type of support is not just what you could expect that others are going to come and help you. It's like you going out to these events that are frequent and find uh, what you need. We started in uh, J-Labs, mm -hmm. you know, next to uh, TMCX with, with one, one bench. And if it wasn't because of J-Labs, maybe we, we wouldn't even be here today at all because when you want to start a biotech company, it's not like software to just do it at your home. You need access to really expensive tools and J-Labs provided that. And so on the oil and gas side, medical side, there is a lot of, um, you know, these support systems um, to kick off companies and entrepreneurship. And I know Mayer has been very supportive, University of Houston, Rice University. So it is a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about Houston that we also take for granted is you have access to everything where you, you wouldn't if you were just in a small town or a town that is mostly only focused on one thing. Mm -hmm. Is there something missing or is there something else that you wish we had here that you yes. see in other places? Or yes, there's two things. One is every time I cross that bridge uh, by Pasadena where you could see the, the ship channel, <laughs> mm -hmm. And like the old, uh, a lot of the existing kind of chemical plants, refineries, I'll love for Houston to pick one of those beautiful lands next to the water and turn it into kind of a green mm -hmm. space for demonstration of energy transition technologies. I think that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And showing people that these two industries could coexist and eventually they're all going to look like this, like biorefineries and low carbon kind of plants. But um, this future of, you know, um, that, sort of the industry. Uh, for more um, like a earlier stage, I think what is missing is more of a structured program 
-hmm. like where like if you had a incubator that could say startups will come to this program they're going to go through these four months we're going to teach them these things connect them with these investors and and kickstart what they do uh, what we have now is basically they they sign a lease and they're there and they're just kind of okay well now you go figure it out and there's some mentors and such but those are structured programs are proven like think mm -hmm. about why combinator you know and, and there's many others capital factory yeah. in, in austin many others that have these structured programs i think would be a good help too is that because there's a lack of tacit knowledge in houston or a funding mechanism like why do you think we don't have a, an accelerator like that today honestly i think it's just if i wasn't doing this and i would probably do something like that mm -hmm. because i think that would be a way to um kind of qualify promising startups mm -hmm. and give them the resources that they need so they could figure it out across say three months instead of on their own across one year. And that's where a lot of these startups die mm -hmm. off because yeah. they, 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 they don't find the, the resonation that they need. Um, especially if you could have something like that, but focus on energy transition, I think that would be amazing. You know, um, we, we joined the carbon to value mm -hmm. program cohort one. So that was really good. A lot of that was during COVID. So it didn't, quite play the same role but i think if houston had something like that but focus on energy transition and then bring corporate partners uh, help them with the pilots and things mm -hmm. like that that would be a, a really good and a, a good business model too for investors having access um to the investors to the startups getting a little bit of equity in return for the services across through the four months so when we think about um climate change uh you know that, that's a global phenomenon, but there's still the local effects that happen in Houston uh, and, and a lot of local work happens in Houston. Are, are there things that Houston should be doing uh, to to address climate and, and by Houston, the amorphous city, not necessarily government? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, 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 the part that we feel the worst stuff is the hurricanes, mm -hmm. <laughs> the flooding, you know. It's really hot. Yeah. Also. And but I don't know <laughs> what you. we could do about that. You know, maybe there's I don't know artificial uh, clouds or something. Trees. That they could yeah, trees. You I know. Did see that episode it's, of The Simpsons where they did something once. That's yeah. a, that's an old reference. <laughs> there was there was someone at the city when I worked at the city of Houston who really wanted a dome. Yes. Over there the you city. Go. Oh wow. A okay. Dome. Interesting. A hundred mile wide dome. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think, you know, it, and I think the city has done a good job mm -hmm. in terms of having focus on this and educating everyone, kind of like sharing the knowledge. But generally just going in and kind of driving around, I think more green space would be really nice. Mm -hmm. And you notice it when we go to some of the other towns where they have built that into their design, kind of maybe because they're newer cities or whatever, but... That is definitely something because we don't have zoning here. It's part of mm -hmm. like this kind of situation that we're in. Um, and then generally for, I think when the flooding happens, I think, you know, having more, more proactive plants around that probably would be good. Um, and trees, you know, um, because, you know, we, we, we notice this a lot when we hire people from outside of Houston and they have a perception one one weird thing I've realized those if they're not from the U.S. outside the U.S. usually you know capital of a province is like the biggest town there. Mm. So when they they think Austin is bigger than Houston and they mm -hmm. come to Houston, it's like whoa, like, whoa <laughs> what happened here? So it's so surprising to them. And usually 
you know, we joke about we have a recru- recruiting season, which is ended now. Um, but when they come and it's not too hot and they love Houston and then we'll win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, um, just continuing a lot of the initiatives that the city has already underway um, for climate. But that's it's such a big and connected problem that, you know, you can't really impact it much as one city. But, you know, I think the work that Houston is doing in energy transition is going to basically tackle the issue globally. So mm-hmm. that's probably the best contribution we could have. Yeah, I'll say there, um, it is a, a quirk of Houston. I feel like the the trees aren't the same here as, as in other cities where it feels like there's a deliberate planting of trees. I live in the third ward and mm. it seems like they're always taking trees down. And, and, and I'm sure there's a good reason for it uh, mm. to somebody's perspective. Um, but it, it, it seems like an ethos that we don't necessarily want greenery in mm. our cityscape. And, and, and I'm hearing you that uh, we should deliberately try to introduce And that. this is when I, I have a public service announcement. And I encourage <laughs> okay. everyone, Houstonian or not, to look at the city of Houston's climate action plan yes. and mm-hmm. resilient Houston, yes. our resilient strategy. Um, because like you said, our challenges are many and it can feel overwhelming, especially on an individual level of what can we do. Uh, but the energy transition work is how we not only solve that long-term mm-hmm. challenge, but we find a way to solve multiple problems at once, right? So we find a way that the technology that's going to help reduce emissions helps us deal with the problems we're facing today. And uh, the city has a plan to plant 4.6 million trees. That's go. two trees for every Houstonian. Okay. Um, but even within that, it's a challenge mm-hmm. because uh, where do you put those trees? Right. Right? And it's a really, really big city uh, we have need for as many people to get involved and plant trees as possible. Volunteer and your backyards. <laughs> yes, backyards, all, all kinds Front of yards. things. Yeah, the trees need to be where the people are, not in the, the middle of like uh, the, yeah, the, yeah. You know, the bayou. Or trees something. can help solve just about every problem. They can help <laughs> with flooding. They can help with uh, extreme heat, mm. right? So neighborhoods that have more trees are cooler. Yep. Um, we have a very large parking lot and it gets very, very, very hot. My car Mm -hmm. said it was 110 the other day and that's just crazy. So I'm going to say we're going to totally go on a tangent here. I was in Singapore in April. They had a parking lot with a forest on top, right? Trees, park, there was like oaks on there. And and I think to myself, man, I went to the, uh, you know, city center, right? And they have those four or five story parking decks they should they got to turn the top of each parking deck into a, a little park to add that green mm-hmm. space but uh we choose not to i think that's a collective we not even a city challenge um but anyways so continuing talking about energy transition right what is what does it look like to you will it ever be done is there a point where you will be like we made it um i mean it's already been done but i don't know this is going to be continuously as humans kind of evolve and more people have access to energy we're always going to have this issue like well what is the impact of the energy that we're using and i think at this point everyone's educated to know all sorts of energy have an impact whether if it's the lithium extraction needed for battery storage you know for solar and wind to work to the material that goes into you know the solar panels themselves to of course, fossil fuel is the one that is like the most, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
attention to in terms of the impact and then you know other sources too and figuring out um you know what what is the best approach at each point of time um i don't know what people's vibe is in 2050 and mm. how they feel about energy at that point but i think what we could do is at least to account for a generation or two ahead of us and hope that they will have some alien technology <laughs> on the road to like solve some of these issues and I think fundamentally, you know, we touched on it. it. I think it comes down to, so like somehow people expect that big companies are going to fix this. Mm -hmm. We don't need to change. Uh, I'll continue to take two showers a day and, you know, like travel around the world and do all these things, drive by myself and because I could afford it, you know. And there's no, nothing that is stopping someone to like think twice about, well, what is your carbon footprint, you know? Like in the U.S. is about 30 tons a, a year, whereas there's other places in the world where it's like less than like 0 0.1 mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. tons a year, you know? So the quality of life that they're experiencing is so massively different. But, you know, you would only notice if, if you go and travel and kind of see how that's different. So as big companies are being held accountable as they should be and have all these plans, I think what I'm just not seeing a lot of is like at a personal level, what people are doing um, to adjust because they don't want to, right? It's mm -hmm. quality of life. It's uh, not an easy thing to try to give up. And it starts to also become more of a philosophical discussion. Like, well, sh should we be able to tell someone like you, you shouldn't do that, you know, if they could afford it, because that's what drove them to do what mm -hmm. they did to be successful, to then be able to, for that for themselves and their family you know um the assumption is that you know this theory of abundance like we're going to have so much energy that it's not a problem and we'll figure out how to deal with the consequences you know and i think that's a good approach and that's really the basis of ccus it's like well allow the continued use of fossil fuels but be ready to deal with the consequences with taking carbon out the something that you're taking in so direct air capture CO2 sequestration, CO2 utilization being part of the solution. Also with new energy technology like nuclear, um, basically that is almost the holy grail of mm -hmm. abundant energy, you know, powering a lot of these other systems, you know, like like our technology and others, they use CO2 as a feeder stock to turn it into other things, creating a lot of closed loop systems, creating ways to, you know, we didn't talk about much about biomining, but a huge footprint right mm -hmm. now, like in mm -hmm. lithium extraction, you know, more than two thirds of world's cobalt comes from Congo and mm -hmm. it's mostly children like 10 to 15 year old that are working in, in these mines. And then it's all sent to China for processing and then makes its way to us. So people, they don't want to, if something is not in there where they see it, they kind of ignore that, but that needs to change. You know, so like I, I would love to see more accountability for environmental footprint, not just the carbon. Like everyone is so fixated mm. right now in the carbon and doing a life cycle assessment. But adding that environmental footprint, I think is, is also important. So it just becomes, you know, world leaders as they come together, you know, every, every COP27, you said, you know, they just have to kind of adjust this plan um, for humanity as mm. we continue to, you know, make... Uh, more people have access to energy, which means improved quality of life. So uh, let's let's put a, talk about capital deployment. If you had a hundred million dollars 
and you could not put it into SimVita, where would you deploy your $100 million to create the biggest climate impact today? I would start that program in Houston <laughs> that we're talking yes. about. That would definitely be a, a, a part of it. Uh, but, I mean, as far as technology, the, the one that I think uh, is um, really impactful to, to get to where it's available is nuclear energy. So that's not within what we're doing, but I think that is going to solve a lot mm -hmm. of problems um, and figuring that out to scale safely and efficiently. Um, big fan of geothermal as well, which is not what Samvita is doing, but I think that's also, you know, a lot of the things that has to do with um, natural resources, but how do we basically tame it in, into what we could use? Um, I think of um, actually the everything as it's, you know, as a game basically. So if you think about, you know, if you played computer games, right? So sometimes you're in an area and you have to go find like prizes and like new life or whatever. That's like what the game we're playing right mm -hmm. now on earth is like to figure out from the first time someone discovered fire, it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and to where we are now, where we're discovering new properties of materials mm -hmm. and, oh, if you could extract, you know, this mineral, you could enable this. And so like actually microbes is like the next frontier mm -hmm. of that, where we just scratch and we don't even know like what they could do. We're just scratching the surface, but that could unlock a lot of these other prizes where we could use them to take humanity forward and enable us to do things more sustainably in a more nature-inspired way with less use of energy. Um, so if, you know, a lot of the, if I had that type of money, I would just spread it across this kind of frontier type applications mm -hmm. that could really make an impact, you know. I think many times that we are still living Oregon Trail and that we have to learn how to cock our wagons and <laughs> mm -hmm. um, defend ourselves from pandemic type <laughs> sicknesses and make sure we have clean water and supplies. And who knew that those early days were helping us? Yep. Um, okay. So speaking also of, of history, old and new, what prehistoric or extinct animal would you bring back? If you mm. could, and why? <laughs> um, could it be fictional or does it have to be? Well, we have this um, in my culture, which is Persian. And where I live, it's next to Persepolis mm. from like, you know, mm -hmm. 2,500 plus years ago. And there's this beautiful mansion, basically really big. And they have this uh, fictional creature, which is like a half human, half lion. That looks really cool. I think uh, if you could bring that back, that would really be awesome. Maybe maybe it's possible one day, you know. But I, I think there's regulations against that kind of genetic engineering. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah. it's talked about more and more, which is why we're asking people. Also, Jurassic World seems to have brought back some some mm -hmm. ideas. But mm -hmm. uh, I was I would be definitely a fan of bringing back dinosaurs. But now I'm thinking about their carbon footprint, <laughs> and that that probably wouldn't help. Yeah, the, the carbon footprint of a T-Rex might be pretty high. Yeah. And right. if, if cows create... Yeah. Exactly, right? These are very, some think, very yeah. large yeah. herbivores out yes. there. Yeah. Um, okay, wrapping up, last kind of, last couple of questions. What can Houston do? What can we do? Is there anything that you need right now from our ecosystem, from the folks who are listening? So honestly, I mean, we talked about a lot of different 
ways. One really tangible one is as our company grows, we'll love to learn more about local talent, um, either those who are in these industries that we're in or thinking about getting involved more. And, you know, they have this kind of challenge of, well, I'm, I work in oil and gas, but I don't know how I could get involved with energy transition or I'm in traditional biotech, but how could I do different things, you know? Um, reach out to us, learn about Samvita. Um, you know, as the company grows, we're going to have, of course, more fundraising along the way and growth that comes with that um, to make sure that we, we have everyone on our radar. Um, for that, we'd love to have Houstonians and those in Houston um, in the company. And that's been a blessing because as diverse as Houston is, like even we were talking today, we have like people in our company, which is about 65 people, is already they're from like 25 countries and they speak like 12 languages, you mm -hmm. know, and that just doesn't happen, mm -hmm. you know, unless if you're in Houston, maybe in New York, in, in, but I don't know what industry that will be in New York to track that kind of diversity. So it's really unique uh, and we'll love to build on that and, and add more. One other thing I wanted to men qu quickly mention is, we didn't touch on it, but there is another big movement happening in Houston for making Houston a hub for biomanufacturing. Mm -hmm. Um, you may have seen the article that was published in Innovation Map about uh, the work that uh, Veronica Wu is doing with First Bite Ventures mm -hmm. around that. And we're involved in it and we'd love to be a part of showing, you know, that Houston has this infrastructure for biotech that has been used mostly for medicine, but it could also be used for biomanufacturing, which is uh, basically energy transition technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm using microbes to make chemicals, but then if you could use CO2 as a feedstock too, now we're talking mm. carbon negative biomanufacturing, which is mm. really, really awesome. So I'm hoping that a lot of these kind of visions that people have for Houston um, would realize in the next few years and, you know, like it to be here and be a part of it. All right. I love, I love hearing how all of the previously siloed areas are starting to come together. And that is the energy transition, and that is so unique to Houston, and that's how Houston can help reduce emissions everywhere, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and if people want to get involved with you, how do they find Samvita Factory? Um, well, for Samvita Factory, um, you know, they could check out the website, samvitafactory.com. Um, we're starting to become more active also for our LinkedIn page for the company, mm -hmm. or you could just reach out to me via my LinkedIn, LinkedIn uh, just Moji Academy on LinkedIn. Uh, there's not many other emojis going around, so it's pretty easy to find. All right. Do you have any uh, parting words or, or wisdom you want to share with the audience? Well, I mean, it's just like uh, one of our clients uh, and a, a really visionary within Oxy is this guy. His name is Rob Zeller. He's a, a, a VP at the um, Oxy Low Common Ventures. And every time, you know, at the end of each meeting, he says, go forth and do great things. So, and this is simple, <laughs> but it's like the best thing like, to leave every meeting is like, all right, thank you, <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> so yeah, I, I hope that, you know, whoever's listening to this, this was kind of sparking some ideas here and there. And yeah, please reach out to us if you wanted to then, you know, translate it into some sort of a tangible thing. Great, go forth and do great things. Thanks, Moji. Yes. Thanks. Thank you guys, this was fun, appreciate yeah. it.